0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hard cider. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a martini, and on this
1: week's episode, we are continuing our New Jersey Crimes-themed month by examining the case of John Wyss. On November 9th, 1971, he killed his wife, mother, and three children at their home in Westfield, New Jersey, and then disappeared. This family annihilator gave the appearance of a normal family man, but all was not as it seemed in the Liszt home. List was born John Emil Liszt on September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan. He was the only child of John Frederick List and Alma Liszt, who were devout Lutherans. The elder list taught Sunday school, and that tradition continued with his son. After high school, John enlisted in the Army and served during World War II, after which he received an honorable discharge. John went on to receive a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accountant from the University of Michigan. He was recalled into military service in 1950 due to the Korean War. John met Helen in Virginia after she was widowed, and they married on December 1st, 1951. Due to his schooling, John was assigned to the finance corps. John, Helen, and her daughter from her first marriage, Brenda, moved to Detroit after John completed his second tour. In 1965, List accepted a vice president position at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. He moved his family, including his wife, Helen, their three children, Patricia, John Frederick, and Frederick, along with his mother, Alma, into a 19-room Victorian mansion at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield, New Jersey. On November 9, 1971, John List became a family annihilator and murdered his entire family using a 9mm Steyr handgun and his father's Colt 22 caliber revolver. The children went to school as normal. He first shot his wife, Helen, in the back of her head and then his mother above her left eye. When Patricia and Frederick returned home from school, John shot both of them in the back of the head. He then made lunch for himself and waited for his final child to arrive home from a soccer game. When John Frederick returned home, John shot him repeatedly after his son attempted to fight back. John lists then placed the bodies of his wife and children in the ballroom. He left his mother's body in the apartment.
0: List penned a confession about why he had decided to carry out his crimes. In a five-page letter to his pastor, he stated that there was so much evil in the world and he wanted to save his family's souls. He cleaned the crime scene, removed all of his images from family photos, turned on a religious radio station, and left the house. List also sent letters to the children's school and part-time jobs, stating the family was going to be gone due to a vacation to North Carolina. List also stopped any recurring deliveries to the home. This led to the murders not being discovered until nearly a month later on December 7th. Neighbors noticed that the lights were on all day and night, and then the bulb started burning out. They called the police, who then discovered the bodies. In August of 1972, the house burned down due to a suspected arson, which remains unsolved. List was now on the run. His first stop was Michigan and then Colorado. He settled in Denver and worked as an accountant under the name Robert Peter Clark. From 1979 to 1986, he worked as a comptroller. Still a devoutly religious man, he joined a Lutheran church where he met Dolores Miller. They married in 1985. In 1988, the couple moved to Midlothian, Virginia, and John started working at a small accounting firm. John likely would have never been caught except he was featured on a new show. America's Most Wanted included the List family murder during its first year on air they presented an age progression model of John List, which accounts for the changes in his physical appearance after 18 years on the run. Less than two weeks after the broadcast on June 1st, John List was arrested. List tried to maintain that he was not the real John List, but his identity was confirmed through fingerprint matching his military records. At his trial, John shed more light on the reasons for his actions. The 1971 financial crisis had led to his bank closing their doors and he was laid off. He was humiliated to share this news with his family, so he pretended to go to work each morning while he was actually attending job interviews or reading the newspaper at the Westfield train station. In order to keep the family afloat, he took money from his mother's bank account and encouraged the children to get jobs, under the guise of learning maturity and responsibility. Helen's alcohol issues were also given as a reason, as well as her untreated syphilis she got from her first husband and hid from John. According to trial testimony, Helen had pressured List into marriage by falsely claiming that she was pregnant, then insisted that they marry in Maryland, which did not require the premarital syphilis test mandated in most other states at the time. Though her health progressively deteriorated, she said nothing to List or her physicians until 1969, when a thorough workup revealed the condition. By then, progression of the disease combined with her excessive alcohol consumption had, according to testimony, quote, transformed her from an attractive young woman to an unkempt and paranoid recluse, end quote who frequently and often publicly humiliated List comparing his sexual prowess unfavorably with that of her first husband.
1: A court-appointed psychiatrist testified that List suffered from obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and that he saw only two solutions to his situation accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. Welfare was seen as an unacceptable option. He reasoned because it would expose him and his family to ridicule and violate his authoritarian father's teaching regarding the care and protection of family members. On April 12, 1990, List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions, saying, quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I asked all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer, end quote. The judge was unpersuaded, stating, quote, John Emil is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from their grave. End quote. He imposed a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, the maximum permissible penalty at the time. Liss eventually expressed a degree of remorse for his crimes. He said, quote, I wish I had never done what I did to them. And he told this to Connie Jung in 2002. He continued, quote, I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since, end quote. When asked why he had not taken his own life, he said he believed that suicide would have prevented him from going to heaven where he hoped to be reunited with his family list died of complications from pneumonia at age 82 on March 21st, 2008, while imprisoned at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Lis family murders and John Lis?
0: It's really shocking and it really makes me mad that he wanted to punish his family or protect his family, yet he himself was allowed to live. It's insulting to me that the thought of living on welfare was worse than his family being dead. It makes absolutely no sense. And I don't really think he showed much remorse either. He really, like, was able to go on with his life. I feel like if this had really been bothering so much from the time that he committed these murders, why didn't he had 18 years to turn himself in? And at no point did he. I'm glad he got caught. And this is, to me, a great example of the media and the true crime community doing good and bringing someone to justice. It's a case where I'm not sure if he's just flat out lying or if he is delusional. It's kind of hard for me to tell. And I also wanted to say real quick, that's crazy that there was a state, some kind of mandated syphilis testing before people got married. I've never heard of that. And that's, really crazy and not something (laughs) I would have thought about, but it was a very common STD, STI. Not to detract from the rest of the case, but that was something that stood out to me. What are your thoughts, Del?
1: I definitely agree with you. When I think about this case, I always think about the fact that he always claimed that he was doing this for a higher moral purpose and, you know, he had all this reasoning, but he ran. He didn't take responsibility for it. Hell, he even remarried while he was on the run. And so that, to me, is not taking responsibility, It's not owning up to your actions, and it's definitely a sign, along with all the other things that he did, that this was a premeditated, calculated family annihilation and one that he seemingly only expressed remorse for very late in life. And while he was very close to, What he believed and what many believe was him coming to his final judgment. And I think that probably has a lot more to do with him eventually expressing remorse than a genuine change of heart and change of demeanor. I also think it's interesting that we have... Back to back cases of military individuals committing heinous crimes. We previously talked about Harrod Unruh, where, I mean, these two cases, they were both, they did very well in the military, and they used that precision and that focus to commit their crimes, where, I mean, we listed all of the different things that Liz went through to not only commit the murder, but make sure that it wasn't discovered uh, quickly so that he had enough time to get away. Yeah. It's just, again, it's a, Like you said, it's a shocking case. It's sad that lives were cut short. I don't care about the fact that his wife lied to him about syphilis. That's not a reason to murder. That is a reason to divorce someone. And I know that his devout background wouldn't allow that, but it also doesn't allow for murder. And I'm sure when people are kind of listing the sins out, murder is way high up on that list than divorce would be. One of the reasons given for this tragedy was John Liss's opposition to welfare and what he felt was his obligation to be the sole provider for his family. Viewing welfare in a negative light is not a new concept, but has become more of a contentious issue. Welfare can be defined as a type of government support intended to ensure that members of a society can meet basic human needs such as food and shelter. Welfare may also encompass efforts to provide a basic level of well-being through free or subsidized social services, such as health care, education, infrastructure, vocational training, and public housing. It was predominantly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that an organized system of state welfare provisions were introduced in many countries. Otto van Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, introduced one of the first welfare systems for the working class. In Great Britain, the liberal government of Henry Campbell Bannerman and David Lloyd George introduced the national insurance system in 1911, a system later expanded by Clement Attlee. Modern welfare states include Germany, France, the Netherlands, as well as Nordic countries such as Iceland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland, which employ a system known as the Nordic model. And this includes a comprehensive welfare state and multi-level collective bargaining based on the economic foundations of social corporatism and a commitment to private ownership with a market-based mixed economy. In the United States, depending on the context, the term quote-unquote welfare can be used to refer to means-tested cash benefits, especially the aid to families with dependent children. AFDC program and its successor, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families block grants. It can also be used to refer to any means-sensitive programs that help individuals or families meet basic needs, including, for example, health care through Medicaid, Supplemental Security Income, SSI benefits, and food and nutrition programs, SNAP. It can also include social insurance programs such as unemployment insurance, Social Security and Medicare.
0: There has been a troubling history in the United States to attack recipients of these programs using derogatory language and promoting falsehood about the individuals receiving assistance. Though many presidents have promoted policies against welfare, Ronald Reagan's opposition to welfare was a pillar of his campaign and illustrates how negative the perception of welfare became. Ronald Reagan popularized the term quote-unquote welfare queens. This is a derogatory term used to refer to women who allegedly misuse or collect excessive welfare payments through fraud, child endangerment, or manipulation. Since then, the phrase quote-unquote welfare queen has remained a stigmatizing label and is sometimes directed toward black single mothers. Hence, it is considered racist by many. During his initial bid for the Republican nomination in 1976 and again in 1980, Reagan constantly made reference to the quote-unquote welfare queen at his campaign rallies. Some of these stories and some that followed into the 1990s focused on female welfare recipients engaged in behavior counterproductive to eventual financial independence, such as having children out of wedlock, using AFDC money to buy drugs, or showing little desire to work. Reagan's characterization of these women were used to justify real-life changes to policies and play a role in the shrinking of the social safety net. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan cut aid to families with dependent children, AFDC, spending and allowed states to require welfare recipients to participate in workfare programs. In the 1990s, partly due to widespread belief in the quote-unquote welfare queen stereotype, 22 American states passed laws that banned increasing welfare payments to mothers after they had more children. In order to receive additional funds after the birth of a child, women were required to prove to the state that their pregnancies were the result of a contraceptive failure, rape, or incest.
1: Political scientist Franklin Gilliam has argued that the welfare queen stereotype has roots in both race and gender. He states, quote, while poor women of all races get blamed for their impoverished conditions, African-American women commit the most egregious violation of American values. This story taps into stereotypes about both women and uncontrolled sexuality and African-Americans regarding laziness, end quote. These tropes and the stigmatizing of assistance recipients continues into the modern discourse. During Governor Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign, he alluded to the quote-unquote welfare queen stereotypes Again, when he attacked President Barack Obama by spreading television advertisement, vilifying President Obama's leniency on the quote unquote undeserving poor through reducing the rigor of TANF requirements to primarily appeal to a white middle class demographic who believe in cutting government spending on welfare programs to force people in poverty out of perceived laziness and into self-reliance. Romney stated, quote, Do you support work for welfare? Barack Obama has a long history of opposing work for welfare. On July 12th, Obama quietly ended work requirements for welfare. You wouldn't have to work and you wouldn't have to train for a job. Mitt Romney strongly believes that work must be a part of welfare. The Romney plan for a stronger middle class. It will put work back in welfare, end quote. Jenny, what are your thoughts on welfare and the treatment that those who receive assistance
0: get? It's really frustrating to say the least, and I absolutely think it is stemmed in racism and sexism, especially in the U.S. People in need are demonized, and it's to maintain the status quo and to distract from larger issues at hand, like what systems are actually in place to keep people reliant on public assistance. And I think we've talked about this before, but Our society in the U.S. and I'm sure in other Western countries, we love to blame quote-unquote poor and needy people for like every problem in this country. And that's not the issue. The people in power – are the issue. Uh, I don't really like Ronald Reagan to begin with, uh, so this is just one of the many reasons, in my opinion, that stereotype still exists today, and it probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, Governments, I think, should be responsible for their citizens, and part of that responsibility, part of that is making sure their citizens can survive, and to me, financial stability falls into that. I had never heard about this new rule where you had to prove that your pregnancy was a result of a contraceptive failure, rape, or incest. And that is one of the most insulting and like another form of like trying to control people's bodies. And, you know, I feel like, I think this is like another way of controlling people's bodies and like encouraging people to not have children, which is something that the U.S. does have a history of. Um, So that's really appalling to see something like so invasive like that. Um, It's like mind-blowing. I say that all the time on this podcast, but it really is just like shocking to see that in the 90s, this happened and that was like acceptable. What are your thoughts, Del?
1: I definitely agree with you. I think that it's a situation where those who are in a privileged position are looking down on those that need help and reasonably expect that their government is going to be the one providing that help. I think that in the United States, we have a culture of thinking that private charities, philanthropic foundations, and all the like are who is supposed to provide assistance to those in need. And I disagree with that. I think that charities, uh, nonprofits, foundations, all of those organizations have their place. But when it comes to making sure that the basic needs of the citizens are met, that to me falls within the government's purview. I think that when people spread falsehoods, such as, oh, these people don't want to work, these people are lazy, it's just welfare queens just taking over is absolutely ridiculous. And... One person I do want to quote is Holly Mitchell, who is a state senator from California. And when they were repealing some of their laws that related to the welfare queen stereotype, she stated, quote, I don't know a woman and I don't think she exists who would have a baby for the sole purpose of having another $130 a month, end quote. And I think that really encapsulates The whole issue, especially with Reagan, where instead of people actually looking at the facts, who needs it, why they need it, and addressing those, they have relied on creating this fictional person, this fictional group of people that are just trying to take from the government and lay on their couch in one instance, they were trying to claim that people were making over $100,000 a year in government assistance. And the saddest part about that is that people believe them. That people didn't fight back and say, that is ridiculous. That is not what is happening. And I think it ties into what the solutions could be and the fact that people keep fighting against it because we also have a culture of if i'm not going to be receiving something then i don't want someone else to be receiving it as well and so again you have people that likely wouldn't be on assistance saying well assistance can't be provided well why not we have the money we have the means of doing it. We just need to have the want and desire to help people that are not in as fortunate of a place as us. And I agree with you uh, when you say that, unfortunately, it's probably not going to go anywhere. And likely as time goes on, we're going to find more ways to stigmatize assistance, not reducing uh, the stigmatization and demonization of those that are just trying to have the same quality of life as everyone else that calls themselves a citizen of the United States.
0: We have discussed familial annihilators on the podcast before with the cases of the Hart family and the Benoit family. We are going to look at two more cases. The first is the Supel murders. In February 2008, Stephen Supel was indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of embezzlement and money laundering in connection with $559,040 stolen from his former employer, the Hills Bank and Trust Company of Hills, Iowa, where he had served as a vice president and controller. At the time of the murders, Supel was out on bond and awaiting an April 2008 trial. Starting at about 11.30 p.m. on the evening of the murders, Supel left a series of apologetic voicemail messages for former co-workers and relatives. On the morning of March 3rd, 2008, at 6.31 a.m., Supel called 911 from his mobile phone, requested that police visit his house immediately, and hung up without identifying himself. When police arrived at his house, they found Supel's wife Cheryl and their four adopted children, Ethan, age 10, Seth, age 9, Mira, age 5, and Eleanor, age 3, dead of multiple blunt force trauma injuries to their upper torsos and heads. Police recovered the presumed murder weapons, two baseball bats, at the scene of the crime. At 6.36 a.m., five minutes after his 911 call, Steven Supel committed suicide by driving the family minivan into a concrete abutment on Interstate 80 at high speed, causing his vehicle to burst into flames. He left a handwritten note in his own kitchen. In it, he wrote that he had killed his wife and children.
1: The next case is that of the Clark murders. Hannah Clark met former rugby league player Rowan Baxter when she was age 19 and he was 31. They married in 2012 and had three children, Aaliyah, six, Liani, four, and Trey, three. Clark had allegedly been emotionally, physically, sexually, and financially abused by Baxter during their marriage. Baxter was subjected to a domestic violence order, or DVO after he allegedly kidnapped Liani on Boxing Day 2019. They went into mediation with Baxter, refusing to sign the consent order, which would lock in custody of the children. He subsequently signed a parenting agreement that gave him the same level of access, same level of access, but was not legally binding. This access was revoked in early February 2020 when police charged him with breaching the DVO. On February 19, 2020, Baxter set fire to the interior of the car Clark was driving to drop their children off at school, quickly killing their children. Clark was able to make it out of the car and allegedly told witnesses that Baxter had poured petrol on her. Baxter stopped bystanders from putting out the fire before he stabbed himself to death. Clark was rushed to Royal Brisbane Hospital with burns to 97% of her body and died there that evening. The murder sparked a national debate about domestic violence in Australia, and the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, attended Clark's and the children's funerals. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these two cases?
0: These are very brutal, and I guess that is the nature of family annihilation, but to set fire to your car with your children in it and to beat your children with a baseball bat... That's like another level of brutality and anger, I guess you could say. It's very disturbing to think about how those children and, you know, their wives, these men's wives suffered so much. Um, And with Baxter, for sure, there were definitely some warning signs. Um, It's just really upsetting to see people that feel You know, some type of way, whether from mental health or just not being able to handle, you know, some things that life has thrown on them, whatever it is, to see them just take it out on people, especially their family that had nothing to do with this. It's really upsetting. What are your thoughts?
1: I agree with you. As we look at all these cases of family annihilators, it keeps coming back to the central thing of the person feeling like they've lost control, and they think the only way to get that back is to inflict harm on those closest to them. And it's just a disgusting reality that these cases have happened, Um, we've covered, you know, through the multiple cases, about six or seven of them, but there's a whole list of them and the details are painful when you look at them because these are the people, and we say this every time we talk about family annihilators, but these are the people that you are supposed to love and support the most. These are the people that you are supposed to protect from outside individuals harming them. And the fact that you are the cause of their demise, it's just a special place in hell reserved for all of these individuals and the ones that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, I just think that once again... I think it goes back to no matter how they try to rationalize their crimes, no matter how much they try to blame other individuals, we definitely need to make sure that we are looking out for the warning signs that this is something that could happen and get the individuals that are most at risk for harm from these individuals the help that they need.
0: Absolutely. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murders of the List family. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the murder of Jeanette de Palma. As always, stay safe.